earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Since we took a brief break for Passion Week and our resurrection celebration, we're now back in the saddle with our series, Oh, That Verse Means That?, And today we're up to session nine, which I'm calling Be Steadfast, a Tall Order from a Short Verse. As you know, we've been scrutinizing some well-known Bible passages, thinking they mean one thing when we first read them, yet we're discovering that in their context, they actually reveal something different. And if you've missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search for local program podcasts, then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, we all know that repetition is a good aid for learning, so I'm going to repeat something I've said throughout this series. The Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, oftentimes we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, tend to make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. Well, in today's session 9, we'll take a little closer look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. A short verse, but one with a tall order, as my session title indicates. And by the way, this just happens to be my all-time favorite verse. And I'm going to read it in my favorite translation for this wording, the 1995 New American Standard Bible Translation. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Friends, when I lived back east in New Jersey, I enjoyed listening to a radio pastor, Dr. Robert A. Cook, then Chancellor of King's College, a Christian college in New York State. He's now with the Lord. Dr. Cook would always say, when you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. This little phrase of his has stuck with me to this day. Friends, I'm convinced that Dr. Cook, in his own way, was encouraging us all to be conscious of the context, not only of a single word, but in essence of any portion of the scriptures that we read. Well-known teacher Kay Arthur, both in her teachings and in her writings, often exclaims, The rule of context is that context rules. So, how many of us can recite the six rules of interpretation from memory? Go ahead, yell them out. Okay, they are, first, context, second, context, third, context, fourth, context, fifth, context, and sixth, context. Now, friends, I realize that this comes off as sounding amusing, but in reality, and seriously, 
These six contexts are actually, one, the immediate context, and this is sometimes referred to in theology as the pericope, which is just a fancy Greek word that means to cut around. The intent here is to encourage us to read the words, phrases, and sentences that appear immediately around the word, verse, or portion of scripture that we are attempting to understand or interpret. Then there's two, the thought context. And sometimes the immediate and the thought context overlap, depending on what portion of scripture we're reading. Three, the chapter context. Four, the book context. Five, the testamental context, meaning the context of either the Old or New Testament. And finally, six, the biblical or canonical context. In other words, the whole canon of scripture, the whole Bible. Friends, sometimes we come to the realization that we need a good or at least a healthy working knowledge of the entire Bible just so we can understand or properly interpret the meaning of a single sentence. This should certainly give us greater appreciation for the Apostle James' admonition that not many of us should aspire to the position of teacher because we shall surely incur a stricter judgment for our words in James 3.1. Now, those of you who don't have the gift of teaching shouldn't just wipe your brow and exclaim, Phew! Because, friends, anyone who presumes to speak for God must still rightly divide his word, per 1 Timothy 2.15. You remember that verse, don't you? I'll just tag on 1 Peter chapter 3.15 to this mix, which states, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter sounds like he may have been inspired by Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21, which say, Have I not written you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? Well, friends, 1 Corinthians 15:58, our verse under scrutiny, is set in the context of the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, which appears to have a clean thought break as the last verse of chapter 14 has the word therefore, indicating it functions like a summary statement. And chapter 15, verse 1 begins with the word now, which may also be translated as but, Moreover, even next, in our day and age, we might say, next up. So we observe that chapter 15 is almost entirely devoted to discussing the resurrection of Jesus and why I chose this passage to keep the resurrection uppermost in our minds as we have just come through Passion Week and the celebration of Resurrection Day, known by many as Easter Now, friends, while in some places we may scratch our heads and wonder what the Apostle Paul is talking about, chapter 15 is one of his attention-to-detail chapters. The resurrection scenario is outlined in minute detail. This is a rich chapter, and I suggest you take the time to read it through in one sitting. For today's purposes, I'm going to draw our attention first to verses 20 through 49, where Paul unravels the sequence of the resurrection. In other words, the chronological order of the resurrection, which is Christ first, the dead in Christ second, and those who are still alive third. 
Secondly, in verses 50 through 57, Paul reveals the secret of the resurrection. In other words, the mystery behind it. The fact that the resurrection of Christ followers will be a literal, physical, or bodily resurrection. And then our verse for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, which functions like an encouraging summary statement. Now, I need to pause here for a moment, friends, because one of the contextual investigations we sometimes have to make is the first century social religious milieu, that is, understanding the prevailing Greek philosophical mindset, as well as the Greek pagan mystery religions abounding at the time Christianity emerged in the Roman Empire. In fact, friends, our English word mystery is actually derived from the Greek word mysterion, which is found in verse 51 and continues a line of thought through verse 57. And here's how the pagan religious backstory helps us. Mysterion was a technical term referred to the first century mystery religions, specifically regarding their initiation rites and ceremonies used to induct members into their secret religious practices. It just so happens that Paul makes another subtle reference to these mystery religions in Philippians 4.12, where he says in part, I have learned the secret or mystery of being filled and going hungry, etc. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is attempting to communicate this truth to his audience. Hey, listen carefully now. I'm going to share a secret with you. I'm going to initiate you into a truth that differs greatly with the prevailing view of the afterlife. The Christian resurrection is not redemption from the body, like our philosophers and mystery religions teach, but rather a redemption of the body. And this notion is expanded on and augmented in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which I'll encourage you to consult on your own. By the way, this pagan religious backstory sheds light on Paul's disappointing preaching experience with the Greek philosophers in Athens on Mars Hill when he engaged the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers whose religious understanding was that the physical body was something to be delivered from. This is covered very well in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, which is immediately followed by chapter 18, verse 1, which informs us that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Friends, we often take for granted that the Christian resurrection includes our physical bodies. But in the first century Greco-Roman world, the resurrection of the physical body was a newfangled idea. And all of this infuses meaning into the single summary statement we're putting under the microscope today, 1 Corinthians 15.58. So friends, what I'd like to do in today's session is analyze our verse 58 in reverse order, beginning with the last phrase, and as we go along, you'll see why I've chosen to unpack it this way. So we'll begin with the last phrase, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Friends, I got to say right here at the outset that it's a great day for the Christ follower when we realize that serving the Lord includes toiling. It's not all just a joyride. And as many of you realize this, the Christian life is not just la-di-da for Jesus. 
Our New Testament bears witness to this in numerous places, but I'll highlight two instances. Philippians 2.16, which says in part, Hold fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Then there's Colossians 1.29, which says, For this purpose also I labor or toil, and Paul is talking about his mission to make the gospel known, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. In this verse, labor or toil literally carries the meaning of wearying oneself, becoming fatigued in and for the Lord's service. On top of that, Paul adds the word striving, where we get our English word agonize. This is a sports athletic term, and it means to struggle or contend with an adversary in a race or a match for a prize. In 1 Corinthians 9, 23-27, Paul extends his thinking on this matter. The gist here, friends, is that Paul recognizes that his toil would end up being in vain if he were to become disqualified from the competition. I wonder, friends, if these questions have ever entered our minds. Do we weary ourselves with the things of the world and then have no energy left over for the things of God? Have we ever wondered if our toiling was in vain? Have we ever experienced the difference between toiling in the flesh and toiling in the spirit? Toiling in the flesh would certainly end up being in vain because any service or works done in and for self will ultimately be burned up. You remember 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 13, don't you? You know, wood, hay and stubble versus gold, silver and precious stones. So this final phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, friends, becomes a steadying phrase for us, reassuring us that we can know that our toil is not in vain in the Lord, and our toil will not be in vain as long as we are toiling in and for the Lord. Amen. Can you see now why I chose to highlight this final phrase first? It sets the stage, doesn't it? And becomes the motivating force for why we do everything else. Well, second up from the bottom is the phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In a sense, this continues the thought we just completed. Our toiling will not be in vain as long as we are toiling in the Lord and our work is of the Lord. Friends, whether knowingly or unknowingly, sometimes we become party to works of the flesh or even works of the devil, don't we? Friends, let's be honest here. This is why it's so vitally important we make sure that we are being led by the Holy Spirit into the things we do. Knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord actually makes it easier for us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, doesn't it? And this notion of abounding communicates the idea that we are always to be doing something in and for the Lord, or at least doing things with kingdom goals in mind. In other words, cultivating a gospel consciousness wherever we find ourselves. Paul even intensifies this idea in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, which say, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, 
opportunity. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians 6, 7, and 8 says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good things each one does, they will receive back from the Lord. And this idea is reiterated in Colossians three twenty three and 24, which say, Whatever you do, do your work heartily or from the soul as for the Lord rather than for people, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Okay, now third up from the bottom is be steadfast, immovable. As part and parcel of a tremendously encouraging statement, I feel like Paul is wanting to say, So, be steadfast, immovable. And I believe, friends, the reason we can be steadfast and immovable is because we are abounding in the work of the Lord and doing this work with the knowledge and assurance that in the Lord our toil is not in vain. We could just glide right past these two words, steadfast and immovable, and completely miss their beauty and power. The word steadfast, which Paul uses again in Colossians 1.23, originally meant a seat, like a chair, and it carried the meaning of sitting firm on that seat. From that literal meaning, we derive the figurative meaning of being solidly based, firm in purpose. In other words, the disposition of our mind, not given to fluctuation, even not moving off course, and therefore being immovable or steadfast. Well, isn't that interesting? Because the second word Paul chooses is the word immovable. Do you think Paul is trying to tell us something here? A double reinforcement, maybe? This word immovable is another great word, friends. In the Greek language, there's what's called the A negative. When the letter A is placed in front of a word, it negates that word. This word in the Greek is A metakinetos. And if any of you have ever gone for PT, or physical therapy, you're probably familiar with the term kinetic, or kinesiology. This is the term for bodily movement. In other words, moving parts of your body for exercise and strengthening. (laughs) I learned from personal experience that PT actually stands for pain and torture. Anyway, the A negative makes this word without movement or not moving. It is meant to be understood as not moved away from. Figuratively, it is meant to communicate don't change your status. And metaphorically, it carries the meaning of persistently unmoved, not jarred from its place. And friends, this is why I alluded to Colossians one twenty three, where Paul repeats his use of this term, which says, Continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And last up, friends, is our final phrase, which is really Paul's first phrase, right? Therefore, my beloved brethren. And a fitting question to ask ourselves is, just what made the Corinthian Christ followers beloved brethren of Paul? Well, the letter itself hints at the answer. They participated with him in the propagation of the good news, the gospel, according to chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. 
Second, they united with him in the work of the kingdom, sending financial aid for his missionary work, according to chapter 16. This endearing expression, beloved brethren, is a designation we should grow fond of, friends. Now, many English translations gravitate between using beloved brethren, beloved brothers and sisters, dear brothers, or dear brothers and sisters. A few more modern translations say dear friends. One says my loved brothers and sisters, and one paraphrase says my dear, dear friends. Our English translations all make a valiant effort to communicate two simple words in the Greek language, agapitos adelphos. One of these may sound familiar or ring a bell to some of you, agape, one particular Greek word for love. But friends, we both know that this isn't just any word for love. This is the unselfish, self-sacrificing love that God himself has for us and the love that he desires and demands that we have for one another. Here Paul could either be reminding these Corinthian brothers and sisters that they are loved by God or that he loves them with the love of God. And the word Adelphos here means more than just brothers. In other words, male believers. It's actually a non-gender specific term. It literally means connected by the womb. In my opinion, a modern day equivalent might be womb buddies. So being non-gender specific, it can refer to both men and women Christ followers. In other words, brothers and sisters in the Lord or in the faith. In Christ, we disciples or followers are spiritual womb buddies, aren't we? Well, friends, here's a fun fact. This word crops up in our English word Philadelphia, which has come to mean city of brotherly love. So, friends, I'll close out today's session calling you all my beloved brothers and sisters, my fellow Christ followers. And I'm going to exhort you all the way the Apostle Paul did to the Corinthians. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And I'm going to add this relevant footnote. For the first century followers of Jesus, abounding in the work of the Lord here meant testifying to the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, toiling for it. After all, didn't Jesus himself say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? Then John adds that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Is this still relevant in our 21st century world? You bet it is. Many of you know that there's an aberrant Christian cult group out there teaching that Jesus rose as a spirit creature and that his physical body either dissolved into gases or is being kept somewhere in heaven as a memorial. And so I ask, how many of us are prepared enough to defend the biblical truth that Jesus rose bodily, physically from the grave? As I shared earlier, 1 Peter 3.15 motivates us to always be ready to give an answer or a defense for the hope that is in us. Well, friends, my hope is that this tremendously encouraging summary statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.58 will come alive for us like never before. It has been my lifeline many times. I hope it will become yours. Amen. Amen. 
Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I appreciate those of you who write in and share your feedback on programs that have impacted you in some way. Before the Passion Week and Resurrection Celebration break, one listener wrote in with reference to Part 8 in this series on the meaning of paraclete with this comment. What a difference a word makes! Who knew that another and the word helper could make such a difference? As we have said before, it's always important to know the who, what, and when the author was referring to. I loved your presentation of the chart. Thanks again for sharing. Well, thank you for those kind words. And remember, friends, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com under Local Program Podcasts. And please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. We have not been immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're living in right now, so please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.